0: Arunava, welcome to Network Capital. Really delighted to have you here. I first uh, heard Arunava speak when I was at the Young India Fellowship, uh, and he came and addressed us, and he spoke to us about uh, many things, one of which was also how his career shaped up and how he came to enjoy and care most about what he was doing at that time. So that lecture stayed with me, and from then, Arunava and I have been in touch sometimes. Uh, We stumbled into each other, most recently in Dubai where we were at the uh, Global Futures Council, and I saw you, but by the time you turned around, we missed each other. And then your TED talk uh, went viral and you touched upon a really interesting concept of uh, the uh, democratic approach to solving a a, a problem as severe as air pollution. So today we are here, this talk is gonna be in three parts. Initially, I'm gonna ask you to share a little bit about your career. Then we're gonna talk about the deeper issue, engagement of people with policy, the public, component of public policy. And lastly, I'm going to request you to share details of what can we as citizens try and do about the air pollution crisis that we are facing. Um, Sounds all right? Yeah, sounds great and thanks for having me.
1: So tell us Arunaba who are you and what do you do? So I'm Arunaba Khosh, I run uh, something called the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. It's an independent policy research institution. I set it up in 2010. Uh, So we're just over nine years old. And CEW now for the last six years has been ranked as South Asia's leading think tank and amongst the 20 best climate think tanks in the world. I also have a couple of other roles. Uh, One is I'm on this uh, Environment Pollution Control Authority that deals with air quality in the National Capital Region. I'm also a columnist with two newspapers, the Hindustan Times and the Business Standard. Uh, and I have a role with the UN, where um, I'm the only Indian that serves on the UN Committee for Development Policy, which is the only expert committee mm-hmm. whose advice the General Assembly is mandated to accept. So, that's my role.
0: How much of your career has been a function of serendipity, and how much of it
1: is planning? It's a great question. I think it's a, it's a bit of both. and. The way I have approached my career is to work on issues that matter to me enough that I'm not going to dart in and out of them. And I think that's uh, important from a, from a public policy engagement point of view as well. Um, I got, an, got an interested in public policy when I was uh, in class eight. And the reason I got into that, at that time I wanted to become an astrophysicist. But actually, the reason I got interested was, that's when the economic reforms launched in India. So,
0: 91. I,
1: 91, yeah. So I was thinking, okay, what is this? What is this happening? And, um, and the need to kind of engage with what's, what's going on. And then I switched, and instead of going down a science route, I decided to study economics. And then, um, while I was studying economics in, in Delhi University, I started thinking about political issues so I I got interested in the Kashmir issue and I wrote uh, I started writing about it and then uh, that some of that went into sort of some government briefings etc and then uh, as I went along I wanted to keep doing things that that were both here and now uh, but also see how could my work influence So I started working on things like access to medicines and uh, intellectual property. In the late 90s, this was a big thing, Um, say antiretroviral drugs for uh, HIV AIDS patients. Um, Things like this mattered a lot. I was like, okay, how do we create, what kind of laws, what kind of international laws are needed to make sure that um, people get access to medicines at the cheapest cost? Um, the serendipitous part of that was when I was writing that thesis was exactly when uh, this was being negotiated at an international level so that kind of got me my first formal job uh, at the UN uh, Where This I was, was right after college? Well no, after college I went to Oxford um, For your phil in economics? No, that time I was doing my uh, uh, my master's and then my MPhil, so during my, my MPhil thesis was on this intellectual property and access to medicines and So this is the early 2000s I'm talking about. And uh, that's exactly when President Clinton, after having finished his term, was running the Clinton Global Foundation, which was interested in this issue. Um, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was interested in it. Of course, there were negotiations happening at the WTO. Um, So I was recruited in the UN to think about, okay, intellectual property and what it means for human development. But then I started working on conflict issues. and I worked for several years on what does conflict do for development, extremism, uh, ideology, and cultural ideology-based conflicts across the world, whether it's in South Asia, the Middle East, sub-Southeast Asia. So I spent a lot of time on that. Um, uh, That led me into natural resource-based conflict issues. So there was one point where I was looking at the Israeli and Palestinian conflict through the lens of water sharing. Um, using NASA maps to kind of bring the two parties together to the same table, and really? look at groundwater, how they can be shared, things like that. And then I did my doctorate, which was in international trade, um, to see how rules that were being negotiated would be implemented properly, especially from the perspective of developing countries. So the serendipitous part of all of this is that you're doing research or you're doing work in areas where you're trying to get some in-depth understanding as my PhD supervisor used to ask me what what do you want to be a go-to person for and the same advice I, ask, I tell my colleagues as well what do you want to be a go-to person for and then you can do many other things and have a curious mind um, the serendipitous part which you can't always strategize is how some of that will gain traction right I don't know when I'm recording a TED talk, how much traction that work will get on air quality. Uh, Or I don't know whether work on renewables will get traction or whether work on refrigerants will get traction. But so if you only look at something that in terms of the public visibility or the public impact, then we sometimes lock ourselves into a mode which is a little bit of like a butterfly that you're just flitting from one thing to another And I would recommend not to do that. Um, Say, you know, build up the the depth of expertise, and the moments will arrive. Um, And some, you know, an uncle of mine recently delivered a talk, he's a a doctor, and he delivered a talk, um, he's developed a new form of uh, treating children, he's an ENT surgeon, and the title of his talk was, how to build a team. Uh, when there is no stadium. And if you think about it, it's actually basically saying a lot of what we do is often, you know, you're kind of lonely. You're doing it because you care about it. The impact you will have with it, the recognition you'll get with it, whether there is a stadium cheering for you or not, it is, it is very important. A lot of us do desire a lot of external validation. There's nothing wrong with that. Just very few of us, I think, are deep sense of comfort of of just themselves. But you have to also recognize that public policy is a messy space in which a lot of people are working, but your own role can be a very lonely role for a long time. So um, in-depth research and uh, desire to follow passions from one thing, to whether it's intellectual property, terrorism, conflict, natural resources, trade, now energy, climate change and serendipity in terms of being able to grab opportunities that arise. Why did you decide to set up an institution? That's a great question again. Uh, So I had been, my last job, I was an academic at Princeton and Oxford. Um, And I was, I'd been away from India for about 12 years by then. And I was very keen to come back to India, do something. And uh, again, it sounds a little bit, you know, uh, silly to say it, but you know, we, 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 our friends, we would sit around talk about issues around the world, and they now joke, hey, we, we, we used to only joke about going back to India. You actually, no one, none of us was expecting anyone to actually pack their bags and go. Um, so I wanted to come back and again do something in public policy. And um, as we all know, um, in India, it is not as linear a path where, you know, you get into a public policy track, then say, if you were an American, then you join a senator's office in Congress, and then, you know, when that senator gets voted out, you go join a lobbying firm or a think tank, and again, you get back into government. Here you're almost m- wondering, you know, where's my next paycheck going to come from? And I was very keen to move at least the Indian context a little away from this complete ad-hocism. Um, And I say this a lot to my uh, colleagues, that public policy is something that uh, does involve a lot of sacrifice, but how can we create public policy uh, as a vocation of choice? That you move from sacrifice to desire. That this is not just a CV building exercise, or it's not just two months I did something, or one year I did something. No, you know, I can build a career around this. so, so how did CW come about? I looked around, um, I, there are many, I mean after the US and the UK and Germany, India has the largest number of think tanks. So in number, we, don't, we are not short, we've got over 200 think tanks in the country. But at least when I was trying to conceptualize CW, I didn't find any that were truly independent. And what I mean by that is take no money from government and yet have the credibility and standing to be able to engage on policy matters with government. Um, and the other thing that I felt was missing was a truly international outlook, um, where we, uh, as policy advisors, we were often towing the formal positions of the government of India or of negotiators, etc., rather than thinking, where is India's place in this world? How would India set an agenda for the world rather than just negotiate for a little piece of the pie? Um, And that requires you to think about the globe and not just what the government is asking you for advice on. Um, And that then led to the third thing, which is that, okay, if I have to advise on energy issues or climate change issues or national security issues, do we have the in-house capability? where we are not just writing a column in a newspaper or just a you know, thin policy brief, but we have the in-depth data, the analysis, the analytics, you know words that are now very normal, big data. But well, what is big data if you don't have any data? You know, what is big data when all the data that does exist, you have no access to because it's behind a government firewall. Um, that requires deep development of the capacity. Now, why should an American think tank or a British think tank do all the heavy analytics and then an Indian think tank just becomes a voice for those for that, or a voice against that analytics. Why can't we do that analytics ourselves? So this, the depth of analysis, the need to have an international outlook, the need to be completely independent. Um, and I looked around, I couldn't find another place that could do it, so I said, okay, let's, try and build that.
0: And what was a? Uh, it's been 10 years since you started? Uh, nine, nine and three months. Nine yeah. and three. Um, now it's really well known, but uh, when you started, <laughs> what, were, what were the challenges of actually setting something up in the Indian uh,
1: ethos? So number one, uh, as it so happens, just yesterday, these two ladies uh, from South Africa called me up. They are setting up a think tank in South Africa. Uh, so, they wanted to, they were kind of asking the same question. It's another emerging economy, so, you know, what are the challenges? Right. So, um, number one challenge is uh, even the opportunity to be acknowledged, not recognized. Recognition comes much later. Um, and I, again, you know, the, What's, what I'll say next will sound glib, but it's sounding glib only because I've thought about it <laughs> so it sounds prepared, but you can learn it through experience I think there are uh, I call them five horsemen of uh, public policy just like the four horsemen of the apocalypse the five horsemen for public policy are ageism hmm. um, sexism classism nepotism and plagiarism and and I say this because when you're setting something up uh, at least then I was young I think I'm young still but uh, you know why should anyone listen to you most think tanks um, have very senior people not just in terms of age but in terms of official positions they've held um, so why should anyone listen to you you've not held an official position you're not even not even worked in this country how do you overcome ageism um, but to me this we, we are not just the fastest or i hope can again become one of the fastest growing <laughs> major economies but we are one of the youngest countries on the planet right so how do we uh, project that demography that india has onto public policy and one of the great things we I'm very, very, very proud about of CEW is that since we started and even now, our median age is less than 30. And sense. we are a staff of nearly 70 people. So overcoming ageism. Number two, sexism. And I don't have to explain this, the structural biases of not just when a young male walks into the room, but when a young female walks into the room, is she dismissed as, ha, beti, tumko... You will, you will have your chance to speak, or, um, or much more sinister versions of sexism, um, classism. Why do we engage in think tanks and public policy only if we are coming from privileged homes where we can afford to stay with our parents? Because the otherwise the uh, the career is not paying enough where someone who's coming from a small town, someone who needs to look after their aged parents also is passionate about public policy issues and therefore is willing to give up a job at a Nestle or is willing to give up a job at a PwC or at a law firm to work on something that matters to them. Um, How do we overcome the classist biases that we have when we talk about public policy, Um, including language? Uh, one of the things I tell my colleagues is never be ashamed of your accent, right? Um, because I have had the privilege of a convent school education, but should we hold back just because that you know we think that the circles in which policy matters are discussed are these kind of elites who have very liberal thoughts but who are actually disconnected? Um, nepotism, you know. Yes, there is no meritocratic revolving door between a think-tank and government role and consultancy, etc. But, yeah, you know, my father works in the UN, so I will get an internship with another think-tank or another UN agency, and we see this all around us. Uh, and then, plagiarism, Because you're giving advice, often uh, government will say, yeah, this was my idea,
0: hmm.
1: right? Or you're, you're telling a senior bureaucrat something and they will take it over or you're telling, even this happens even in academia. So, these are, I'm not talking just about CW and I'm just saying these, these five horsemen of public policy are also the challenges we've faced, and I think some of them we've been able to overcome significantly, for instance, the ageism part. Some of them are far more structurally embedded, uh, but we have to be at least conscious of those structural biases to be able to build both careers as well as an institution. You know, one aspect which uh, which you've been a
0: contrarian in is that you've, uh, at least from what I've understood, that it is possible to build a career in policy in India, um, which is both meaningful, and rewarding and impactful if one does it the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that your school of thought is again is, is a minority still, and most people think of policy careers very differently?
1: So, I mean, uh, it's I'll tell good. you where I'm coming from. Yeah, because I want to know, is, is do you think that the, I'm in a minority because of the right way or because of the uh, the, the thought that you can actually have a career?
0: I, I, I strongly believe that uh, with what you said, you should be the go-to person or something. You need to have mm-hmm. some sort of subject matter expertise. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, so on Network Capital, we have a policy subgroup. So a lot of... Uh, people who I see, even with strong backgrounds, right. struggle big time to figure out where to play, what to play. Do I need to uh, be an IS officer mm-hmm. or to become with, or do I need to have a strong signaling value? Like, do I need to go to a top school, right. or should yeah. I have like top brands associated uh, right. with with my CV to be to be able to build a successful career? Right. Or is it possible to not have any of those? and have all the structural disadvantage and still be able to build a career
1: in policy so i think uh, some of the things that you mentioned of course make it easier right Uh, so if you have pedigree uh, not in terms of your family but in terms of uh, um, education or universities you've gone to of course gives you a leg up Um, but even there i would say that the path within india is much harder than you know, if you were getting an Oxford degree and staying on in London to work, or you're getting a Harvard degree and staying on in Washington DC to work, um, so that only gets you a bit of the way. I think why I am where what you say is contrarian is this belief that if you are, if you're good. Um, at some point, you will be noticed. I mean, it's very hard to completely <laughs> ignore you. And I think we we lose that sense of self-belief. And I'm not saying this only nine years into CE It is I, I, I grew up in Delhi, so I've had that privilege. Uh, I went to uh, an elite institution like St. Stephen's, so I can say I have that privilege. But I had no family kind of lineage or networks etc right so it's just sure will that i will work on things and th- there will be a point that you cannot beyond which you will not be able to ignore me hmm. right and uh, and that sounds a little bombastic but i hope it does not come across like that because behind that the the, the wheels are constantly turning and this feeling that for every two steps one can take, someone else takes those two steps with half the effort. And to be able to do that year in, year out. Right? I, I Just last week, for an induction of some of our new colleagues, I showed them a cartoon from the Wall Street Journal. The cartoon is this man in a, in a trench coat, holding an umbrella and a briefcase, um, at his doorway. And he's about to step out and you can see uh, a pretty strong downpour. And the tagline is, what's my motivation, And I think uh, it's very important to realize that actually, every day there is a downpour. And you have to remind yourself that there is a reason you're stepping out into that rain, whether you have an umbrella or not. And here's the thing about institutions versus individuals. When you don't come from lineage, when you don't have that accent in your favor, when you've not gone to you know, an elite school or an elite college, you don't have any of those crutches. So that umbrella is often that institution. So even if you are giving up on yourself as the individual, if we can create institutions that offer that platform or that cover, then many more who are about to give up can find opportunity. And I say this um, because at CEW, we have two big mantras. You said, why did I set it up? And actually, if you heard, I said nothing about energy, environment, and water. Yeah, I was gonna come know. to that. And we set it up because we wanted to create a platform for, pu- for careers in public policy. The same platform that did not exist for me. Yeah. So, a, so if I can create something the I, I, I still kind of well up a little bit because one of my colleagues, uh, he no longer works with us, um, but he was 25 when, based on some research he had done, uh, we were invited to the Prime Minister's office um, to, to present on that analysis. And there's this photograph of him, another colleague, and me, uh, you know, with Rashtrapati Bhavan and the PMO part of South Block in the background and taken a photograph. And he was twenty-five. Nobody was opening doors to the Prime Minister's office for me at twenty five and still maybe people will not. So the point is there is that deep desire to, you know, stick it out. But there's also recognition that, you know, if we can keep building some platforms, then more will join. And it's that it's that power of numbers. That we want, we want literally, we want literally tens of thousands, rather I would say hundreds of thousands of Indians working on public policy. It does not matter whether they're working on energy, environment, water, or trade, or public health, or education, or human rights. Does not matter. We need that that number of people, of really smart people, the best and the brightest to invest their careers in issues that matter to them. And what
0: advice would you give such people? On Network Capital we have thousands of people like that who who of course know about CEW but are waiting for channels to find opportunities or build
1: careers. What advice would you give them? What is one thing they should know but they don't? So number one advice, and this goes back to what I started out with, is try and find Um, something that you're, that go-to point, something that you're really, really good at, um, that need not be the only thing you're good at for the rest of your life. Because when we are recruiting somebody, uh, at CEW we have something, we have a, uh, we have something called a people value proposition. What does it mean to join CEW? And what is the institution offering? And one of the things that we, believe in leadership by initiative, you could be an intern, so you're not even a full-time staffer, and you would have the freedom to start off something um, because you have that skill set. And that has happened again and again and again. Work that we have done on uh, solar irrigation pumps, um, mapping out every single district in India. Based on where you get maximum return investment in solar irrigation pumps. That work began, uh, was begun by an intern. Work that we're doing on rooftop uh, distributed energy. Work began under an intern. Um, so look for something that you can come to the table with as, like, this is my niche. In fact, the other day we have a policy of rotating chairs for our team meetings. So this, younger colleague, she ran this amazing team meeting and then she said uh, I want, I'm setting up a spreadsheet on Google Drive I want all of us to write what is the one thing that any one of us can go to you for
0: hmm.
1: You know, and again uh, and you can't say oh I am more senior therefore these are ten things, no, what is the one thing and this is this uh, younger colleague of ours who initiated this so now you know, oh yeah I want to discuss you know, raw materials in Russia, yeah, there is that person who, who knows that. So that is number one advice. Number two advice is look for institutions that will generally, genuinely be independent. And that is critical because if you are unable to express your conviction through the independence, the protection that an independent institution does, you will soon get overwhelmed by those structural biases I talked about. The institution has to ensure that they don't throw you under the bus. That just because one government bureaucrat calls up the super boss and says, you know, how did you put out this document? And you say, okay, either change that document or leave. That happens all the time. The third thing is to look for institutions that pay well. I mean, let's get real. Absolutely. Uh, and, And fight for... Good pay. I'm not saying fight for now. Good pay can be anything, you know. And like, we're still four months, five months away from our appraisal season. And so my <laughs> colleagues in the room right now, like, Arnava, in December you said fight for good pay. You stepped into it, but no. It is a very hard. It is very hard work to fight with donors, with. Uh, Government officials, etc., to say, Yeah, if we have the best and the brightest, we want to pay them really well. And I'm just uh, very happy, and this is not just my uh, task alone. I'm very happy that my colleagues believe in that and fight for their colleagues in their teams that this is important. Because if we only keep it as a vocation of sacrifice, we'll either have few people who are truly invested in what they want to do or you will have many people for a little bit of time because you will have to pay for your father's dialysis one day. You will have to book a flat in Dwarka one day. you know. And if you don't, if you're not conscious of these real things as well, you're disconnected. Your disconnect cannot be just in academic writing and public policy. Your disconnect can also be about what is life? What does it mean to uh, pay for your daughter's schooling? What does it mean to pay for your father's dialysis? So find your core niche. Look for institutions that will not throw you under the bus. Hmm. And fight for a good pay. And uh, just gonna flip this
0: question and then move to another section. what are some things that people looking to build careers in public policy should do better? Or when people come to you either to recruit or seek advice, what do you think they should stop doing?
1: I think the space for career policy, uh, uh, public policy is also rapidly evolving. And one of the things we have to stop doing is assume that the moral power of your conviction is going to suffice. What do I mean by that? Because the space tended to be small and the people who tended to work in it were those who who believed in the public good more than private interest, there was an instinctive tendency to also feel that we were on a higher plane, Hmm. right? And sometimes that's needed because, again, that gets you out of bed, that gets you through the rain, that I'm doing something for the but greater good. yeah. purpose, But here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with feeling moral conviction for it. But Here's the problem. This space in which people and institutions and actors think that they have a say in public policy is getting very messy. So it is not just an academic or just an academic who's now in a think tank. It's also a consulting firm that will have a public policy arm. It is also a law firm that will have a public policy arm. It will have, There will be a government affairs department of a large conglomerate which will do public policy. There's the government itself, there'll be an international organization. So we are in a space that you cannot simply say, listen to me because I am a greater human being than you. And we often, you know, it's the, I don't know what the Latin of, uh, Latin, uh, obverse of uh, ad hominem would be because ad hominem is you're attacking someone, but the the opposite of that, I am so great that you must listen to me. (laughs) Neither will work. Neither will work because someone else will beat you on branding. Someone else will beat you on the amount of data they have. Uh, Someone else will beat you at just the large number of people they can pay for and just churn out things. So that's the thing we have to stop doing, we have to recognize that the space is changing. The other thing, and I think Utkash, you are well familiar with this, is this power uh, of being able to figure out what are the right networks through which you are able to amplify your message. And the linear thing of I wrote a paper that paper got published, then I wrote a, wrote a column, that column was read by a bureaucrat, then the bureaucrat passed it on the minister, and then it, you have to find allies that are not obvious. You have to find a documentary, you said there are some documentary filmmakers working out of this space, right? You have to find a documentary filmmaker uh, who's interested in this. You know, 15 years, 16 years ago, 15 years. Ago, I made a documentary on water with, for MTV hosted by Jay-Z, right? Um, But you know, is Jay-Z still invested in water issues? No, but it amplifies your message, but it would be superficial if you did not stay in the water space. You know, if you are also darting in and out like a celebrity, then it's not worth it, right? So recognize that power of finding allies in non-obvious spaces. The third is this digital world. Digital world, in the sense of not just amplification of messages, but just the way in which information is flowing, the way information can be analyzed, where you can get access to data. Take air pollution for a second. Why do we only have to rely on data that's coming out of a Central Pollution Control Board monitor in Delhi? Delhi, Delhi has 37 such monitors. You know, uh, another major city in India might have zero. But can I get data from low cost sensors? Can I get data from NASA satellites? Can I triangulate all of that information? Um, Can I do primary surveys? So this information, uh, you know, Francis Bacon said knowledge is power, but information is not power, but it's a route to breaking down those structural biases of ageism, sexism. If you have more information, then eventually you will be heard. Don't hold the information, make it public. That's another thing we're really, really proud about at CW. All the data that we collect, and we have some of the largest data sets in the world in areas that we work on, it's all public. So we are also disrupting someone else's behind the paywall uh, business model. So Yeah, these are some of the things I would say in the kind of inflection point of public policy we are in. See, think about it. When did the best thing times in the world begin? Exactly 100 years ago, at the end of the uh, First World War. 1918, 1919. Carnegie, Brookings. All these came up within one or two uh, years of each other. But think why they came up at that time. Because in uh, the US at that time, was already the world's largest economy for a while. But they realize it's not enough to be the world's largest economy unless we have a position of how the world is running. It's not enough for India to be only congratulating itself for the growth rate of its economy. Or we are the fastest growing emerging economy. But we have to have some sense of what's happening in, in the world or how we shape it. So it is an interesting inflection point where we are very very well positioned. So... I think it's, it's a great time for more people to enter. Uh, I again say, you know, like if you take McKinsey as a consulting firm, management consultancy as a career, as a profession didn't exist 100 years ago. Uh, James O. McKinsey started McKinsey, was with Marvin Bauer who built up McKinsey uh, over three and a half decades. So we should be building up institutions of public policy now and then someone in 2050, you know, when India is a 100-year-old republic, they're like, yeah, I just spent the last 30 years of my career as a public policy professional, which was not as an IS officer. Nothing wrong with that. But outside of the government, I spent 30 years as a public policy professional. I think this is
0: fascinating. This particular, like, uh, section has been illuminating not only for people who are interested in public policy, but I think these mental models are relevant for people who think about careers at large. Because one thing that you talked about is basically building a niche for yourself and creating the ecosystem or shaping the ecosystem in a way that it works for you and also for the ecosystem. I think that's something that you've managed to do really well. Um, just want to move to the next section, which is on the public of public policy. So when you were, uh, you spoke a little bit about Kashmir, and we, we, we're, in, we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm in the public about uh, a wide range of issues how do you think the public of public policy can be energized to create
1: tangible impact so i'm going to answer that question again through a through a slightly different lens if you believe you have all the answers you're always going to be talking down at somebody okay equally if you believe that i just tell the citizens it's your Duty to be in invested in public policy. Yeah, great, but you know I got to cook some food for my children and I got to get to work. Neither of these two extremes work. And how do we apply that, say, within CEW in the first place? And then I come to your question. It is about empowering individuals in a manner that I am looking to you for answers. Right, and uh, I joke with my team uh, that today if I. Today, if I applied for a job at CEW, I'd likely not get recruited. (laughs) Because the depth of work that my colleagues are doing, some of who are in this room, uh, I am learning from them. I don't know whether they are learning much from me. Because of the depth of work that I hope they feel they've been empowered to not just develop, but lead and provide answers on. Now, if we take the same model out to citizens, one basic part is yes as a citizen you should be thinking about what's happening to your country what's happening to the to your world and what do you feel about it if you feel very strongly about it you might even go uh, for a protest march or sign a change.org petition right what after that is there something in your own actions where you become part of the solution where so that's where say the work that uh, i mean the, the talk i gave on on air quality, I am not an expert on air quality, my colleagues are, and there are many other institutions working on it, there are many other experts working on it, but I was struggling to see what do I say that is not technical in a way that I make the citizen feel dumb, rather the citizen should feel empowered. And that is the bottom up part of public policy engagement. Uh, because if you only come across as or are constantly trying to prove that you are the smartest person in the room you will probably succeed in doing that but you will also lose your audience mm. right um, and you'll certainly not find allies so the the way to do this is you know trying to find something that there is a behavioral part that is that enables the citizen to do something if you say garbage is bad so for instance, very disempowering, I live in a condominium in Gurgaon. For the longest time, we had no garbage segregation. Now what's the point of me segregating garbage in my home, in my flat, hmm. if the condominium is not doing it? Now guess what? I didn't go and start the garbage segregation kind of scheme in the condominium. It is another regular person who's done it. right? So. It's very important for you that between feeling frustrated about something, protesting about it, there is some sort of an action that I can initiate, that I can get done. Mm-hmm. The second is uh, how do we again create those safe spaces where these conversations can play out a little bit, mm-hmm. because you know you you can say, okay, will I be the lone voice who talks about something as a citizen? Either my voice is not heard, only because I'm just one person speaking, or because mine is the only voice heard, then I get attacked, I get vilified, I get trolled. So how do I create a safe space through public policy institutions, but also through community networks, that your effort is, is protected? The same, basically, if you're... Seeing this, it's the same rules we are applying within the institution. How can you do, be a really good researcher on something, but also feel the comfort of the institution is not going to throw you under the bus? Mm-hmm. How do I create a community of people working on something without feeling that they are going to be abandoned the minute so uh, something goes wrong? So I, I, I mean, there are some of these rules that you need to follow very consciously. The last thing I would say on this um, is that you can't you need to be very clear of who you are. So say at CEW, we are a policy research institution. In fact, the re- institution takes no policy positions. It's based on individual researchers and their peer reviewed research. That research could be taken on by a citizens group working on air pollution. That research could be taken on, on by activists. About something but if you have to be clear clear where the lines are so if you begin to blur your lines between what is your profession and what is your role as a citizen then you get questioned your motives get questioned etc so it's a it's very critical to feel that I have some empowerment to action my frustration or my passion. Very important to feel I'm part of a community that is going to protect me, that's going to buffer me. And it's important to know what is my day job and what is not, hmm. right? Then then we will actually get even more citizens engaged in public policy, so that the investment banker can also think about air pollution, right. Because one is a profession, the other is, what are you doing as a, as a, as a citizen? And you need both. You, to need be able to make, you need to You need to make a difference, and I realized this not when I was beginning to get interested. I realized this over dinner in my college hall in Oxford one night, 20 years ago, when this astrophysicist a <laughs> uh, friend of mine, uh, British astrophysicist, started talking to me about why Britain should join the euro. I said, "Hang on, you're not even um, an economist." You know, because in my head I'm thinking, like, in India we are slotted. the economists will have a position on whether, what the inflation is, and the astrophysicists will have a position on whether we should go to Mars or not. And here is someone who is initiating, and not because it's a cursory, off-the-cuff talk, he's been reading about it, he's reading journal papers about it, he's reading the Financial Times about it. It's like, this is what, because this is my country. This is what matters. So in that role, he's being a citizen. And then he has a third role where he is volunteering for the Green Party for local elections. So you are, we say we have multiple identities in terms of caste, class, religion, language, ethnicity. We also have multiple identities of how we interact with each other. Absolutely. So one day I will be marching with you about X. Another day I will be analyzing something with you about Y. And a third day... I might be campaigning for you if you're signing for elections. All are legitimate roles as citizens.
0: In fact, there's a lot of research that suggests that uh, the people who are able to successfully engage in multiple things uh, get better at all of their endeavors, yeah. as long as these endeavors <laughs> are not too many in number. So there's tangible research there. Um, is, are there some examples that uh, that India can look, look up to or, or look towards for inspiration to be able to do this uh, public policy impact better examples in terms of other countries or groups who've done this well where we
1: can look for inspiration no look at us look at us and pre independence india privileged people yes everyone got a british uh, sort of legal education um, stayed in their fathers homes uh, big big homes uh, but at the same time basically engaged in public policy but you know Ambedkar also got a privileged education, did not come from a privileged background, and could have said, you know what, now I have broken free, so let me just become a rich lawyer. But he also engaged in public policy. So what I am saying today is actually nothing new. And I'm not saying this in a flippant way, let's just celebrate our freedom fighters. But forget the freedom fighting part of it. What are they actually engaging on? What were the core issues they were beginning work with? They were like, how much taxes are we paying? How is... The textile mill getting affected, what are the rights that the labor have? You know, those are public policy issues, even in a free India. Hmm. right? So having said that, I would say that the way, and this is where uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, point you, the question you asked earlier as well about the role of citizens, I still think that the you know, place like the United States, is remarkable in the way communities organize on issues that matter to them. The fact that you know they take the membership of a, a, a parent-teacher association seriously, that you get elected to it, and therefore you are deciding what the school curriculum, not some super boss in a super ministry deciding what books your children will really read, but you also have a regular day job. You're just investing time in that. Um, so I think this is, we need to decentralize um, public policy engagement a little bit. We have, because we are such a large country, everything kind of begins to flow from the top. And we've lost a sense of what it means to be elected to an RWA, a resident welfare association. What it means to, you know, uh, be elected to uh, your college uh, union, not just because you're, you know, protesting in favor or I mean protesting against the government or marching in favor of the government. No, just what does it? Mean? It's so funny. Yesterday, my my daughter, who's seven, uh, as I was tucking her into bed, she said, Baba, uh, out of the blue, this is, Baba, uh, what does it mean to be head boy? You know, and, I was head boy in my school I don't even know who's told I have certainly not told her anyway she knows what does it mean to be head boy and I I stopped and I was like uh, well number one you have to care about other people and and I remember one of the things I had done which I am most proud about uh, was uh, I effectively stopped uh, corporal punishment in my school I wasn't trying to, you know, change the education curriculum. I said, no more caning ever in the school, right? And so you have to just care about something, and that does not require an office. It does not require a position. It just requires a feeling that you can get something done. But to do that, I had to mobilize the students. I had to mobilize teachers. I had to find allies. So. I know it sounds silly and flippant or, you know, as you're talking about his high school days, but I think we are losing a sense of what we can achieve. And that, again, back to air pollution, is the source of our frustration, is the source of our apathy. We are apathetic because we think we can't solve it. Therefore, it must not be a big enough issue. So I don't feel guilty about it. If I felt I can solve it, then I will feel that it is also a big problem and I will feel it is not enough just to ignore it. Mm-hmm. In fact, just uh,
0: before I open up for questions, uh, let's take air pollution as a case study. Your TED talk was watched uh, thousands of millions of times maybe. Um, you talk about three points. So let's try put all that we've discussed into saying the air pollution issue that Delhi faces. What is this eighty 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 mission that you mm. came up with, mm. and what should everyone listening to this know about this mission, and how can they feel less
1: uh, apathetic? So, uh, mission 8080 that we proposed, and I'm saying we because this is uh, this is CW talking. Uh, we 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 think about how to solve for this problem. Um, In 2027, India is going to be a 100-year-old independent nation, Uh, an 80-year-old independent nation. Can we have 80% reduction uh, in air air pollution in 80 cities across India? So on our 80th birthday as a country, can we have reduced air pollution by 80% in 80 cities across India? That's really what the simple message is. Now, behind that simplicity of the message is... (coughs) going to require a lot of citizen engagement. So number one, what we say is, can we just educate ourselves about this problem, right? And rather than say, oh, I can, I can become, I can build up my immunity against this. This is not a virus. It's something that is embedding in our lungs all the time. So you can't build up immunity against it. You can't build up an immunity against smoking. You can't build up immunity against uh, evolution. So educating ourselves, but also in terms of what do we do when I know that it is good or bad or ugly or severe or hazardous, how do I act on it? Second, how do I begin to work on using data? Again, the democratization of data that I was talking about. How do I, as a citizen, become an active monitor of what is happening and get the state to respond to it? So one of the things we've been saying is like you have PCRs, police control rooms, mm-hmm. can we have pollution control rooms and rapid response teams that if I am seeing a grievous violation, I'm able to dial in. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting into a political debate about whether it's getting solved, whether or not even is succeeding or not. No. I'm just like if I see somebody getting attacked on street, just like there is now, despite the, the severe challenges with women's safety, especially in this city, uh, we now have this 1091 number uh, can we have an emergency call in number and i begin to act as an active monitor can i as an active engaged citizen build up some uh, empathy for my fellow citizens you know that could be a night guard needing requiring heat in winter that could be the farmer who is being forced to burn his fields because we have the price at which we want to eat rice is what we are setting and therefore the farmer is then growing that rice and therefore he's drawing down the groundwater therefore he can't sow sow it soon enough therefore he has very little time before he plants the wheat crop etc etc we have created that political economy for the farmer Uh, can i change my lifestyle so these are all ways in which under the current circumstances, I can still begin to have, I can still feel that I'm empowered to do things. That does not absolve the authorities from their responsibility. That does not absolve the rapid response team from not sitting on the chairs and not responding when I'm dialing in. Mm-hmm. But we've got to ask for it. We've got to demand it. If we did not educate ourselves, if we did not monitor what was happening, if we did not ask for it, governments will remain apathetic because governments are reflecting our apathy mm. and our apathy is coming from our sense that I am disempowered to do anything about it. That could be air pollution it could be climate change it could be public health it could be women's safety, whatever we need to engage no and 80 is all about us having to engage. And very memorable as well <laughs> <laughs> uh, Last one
0: all factors considered, uh, India today fills you with hope,
1: hopelessness, or somewhere in between. <laughs> what is the right answer you're expecting? You know? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do what I do. I wouldn't walk into the rain if I did not believe that we were uh, being. We were a force for uh, a positive change. It's very hard. This is what I said. Uh, earlier in this conversation Um, how do you build a team when there is no stadium right and uh, you can't do that unless you believe that what you're doing is going to make the difference that you're seeking Uh, you know Aristotle said the pursuit of happiness um, is what life is all about because you're never happy Until the the micro moment before you pass on. That's when you achieve happiness. Now Buddha could have said that's when you achieve nirvana. Whatever. Does not matter what you describe it. But the pursuit of what is happiness for you can only come from if you believe in that happiness. And that happiness could be very superficial. Aristotle many categories of happiness. It could be superficial. or it could be substantive or it could be uh, inspiring let us not judge each other about what each person's source of happiness is in our case or I would say at least in my case and I believe the same to be the truth uh, same to be the truth for my colleagues the pursuit of happiness is uh, the, the belief that public policy can be uh, a source of positive change it's been a delight Arunaba.